gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. But a very special happy Mother's Day, all of our mothers, grandmothers. And in celebration of Mother's Day, I figured that we would talk about one of the most controversial texts in all of the church on women. (laughs) So please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in all seriousness, I didn't realize till a couple of weeks ago that on Mother's Day would be the start of this five-week series looking through these few verses truly on maybe what are some of the most controversial texts in the church today across the entirety of the New Testament. So I'm going to blame it on the sovereignty of God. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. But I also hope that this text will be an encouragement to you ladies. To help us understand what God has to say about the roles of men, but also the roles of women. And how both roles can be exercised in beauty and in glory for his name's sake. Beginning in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. To our text now, today, and the next five weeks, verse 11 to verse 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and in holiness. Holiness shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Adornments of good works that Paul just alluded to just a few verses earlier. But as we look at this text, my hope is that we will change this from a text of negative restriction and the baggage that we bring into it and all the debate and discussion. But over the next five weeks, we can transform this to an understanding of a passage of positive challenge and encouragement and validation. Today we're going to be doing an overview of the text. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be passing over the text several different times, looking at different aspects and angles. But today my goal is just to trace the flow of what Paul is saying. My goal today is not to try to bring in all the debates yet and discussions around the topic Yet. We're going to acknowledge some of them, but I'm not going to treat them in full yet. Good biblical theology. 
begins with trying to shut out that which you come into the text with and then just trying to trace what is the actual argument going on here because I believe that if we just simply read the text contextually, tracing the flow of the argument, it is possible to get the great and clear sense of the text without any sort of esoteric, extra-biblical, cultural, and even linguistic insight, though those can be helpful. Four points this morning as we look through this text. Here's the four main points that I believe capture these verses. Number one, women should be learners. Number two, her heart should be humble. Number three, she must exercise her role rightly. Number four, sisters, pursue faith, love, and holiness all with self-control. Now, if you're note takers, you didn't get all that, don't worry, we're going to come back through them. As I read through this text, though, undoubtedly this text will provoke certain questions. And when you're reading through a text, it is helpful to say, what questions does this reading provoke? And some of them are very simple, then other texts bring forth a lot of questions. And here are just some of the ones that, in listening to my sisters in Christ, but also some of my own questions, what does a learner look like? And, and how can you, Pastor Nathan, speak on this since you are a man? Won't you be tainted by it, your perspective? Does quiet mean silence, meaning she can't talk? Do these instructions still apply today in the same way? Wasn't this just a cultural issue back in Paul's day? Or isn't this just instruction for husbands and wives but not the general group of men and women? Is this just Paul's opinion since he says, I do not permit? What can a woman do in the church? And what, if anything, can she not do? Can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman be a deacon? Can a woman teach with men present? Can a woman exert leadership of any kind in the church? Is woman's role a punishment for being the first sinner? As we see, it seems to say here in this passage. Did Adam not sin because it says Eve was deceived and not Adam? Was it all Eve's fault? And what does it mean that women are saved by, by childbearing? Are women only valuable if they are able or have had children? And why does it seem like Paul singles out women in this text anyway? It's a lot of questions. This is why we're taking five weeks on this topic. But we also have to acknowledge this topic will excite bias and or baggage that we bring with us into this passage. A good historian, a good theologian, a student of any kind will be extremely cautious in identifying the baggage they bring into any discussion. My sisters, maybe you bring the baggage of prior hurts over this topic. Men, fear over where this discussion could lead. 
Whether we realize it or not, we bring the feministic influence and agenda over the last four decades in with us because it is everywhere. Or on the other side, maybe we bring in patriarchy, which is an overly extended view of headship and masculinity. Some of you are afraid out there right now of wokeism, thinking that this is going to be the predecessor or the slippery slope into compromise and capitulation with the culture and slide into liberalism. And even the term I'm going to use frequently, our roles. Have you ever thought, is that a good word to you or a negative word? And why is it good or why is it negative? Because when you hear a woman's role, what you may subconsciously hear is, sit down, shut up, stay at home, have kids. My role. What does role mean? Instead of a box that is meant to constrict, instead of redefining it, both men and women are particular ways in which God has designed us to fulfill a special role to bring him glory and delight and joy. Now, as I go into this, I do have a personal request. I am keenly aware uh, and conscious of how sensitive this issue is with many different people. In some ways, I feel like I'm walking a narrow path with landmines on either side. I am giving very careful attention to the text. I'm trying to speak very carefully and respectfully. But I do ask for your prayers, your patience, and your grace because I'm not perfect and I'm not going to get everything right. And please give grace to one another in this topic and discussion outside this space and inside this space. And may we acknowledge as well that I, I believe this is a very important topic. It's an extremely important topic. It has to do with how well the church lives out the living Christ. Whether a church is healthy or not. But it is not an issue of salvation and damnation in most cases. In other words, there are some people with which I strongly disagree, but I would not go so far as to say that they are not a sister or brother in Christ. And let's make sure that we treat these things rightly and in the right sphere. Many of the questions today that, that I brought up will be left unresolved today. Hence, again, we're going to spend the next five weeks on this topic. I want to give you a little bit of a precy of where we're going. Today, the big idea, let a woman learn and exercise her role rightly. Next week, a needed confession concerning male roles exercised unjustly. Third week, a needed understanding concerning female roles exercised in dissatisfaction. Fifth week, fourth week, I'm sorry. The great debate, what can a woman do in a church? And then the fifth Sunday, sisters, persevere for your complete salvation is coming. 
Today's goal is an overview and a general understanding of the text, so let's just go ahead and get right into it because my pastoral goal is hopefully to inform, encourage, and empower over this text that we often sidestep because we sometimes just don't know what to do with it. Paul is directing his attention to women, but not women only, to the men who are going to be interacting with the women as well. Women is sometimes translated wives. It's very important because sometimes people say, well, women should be translated wives. Really, this is a discussion for husband-wife relationships. But that is a basic misunderstanding of the Greek text because there is no Greek word for wife. It is woman of marriageable age, man of marriageable age. And so the interpreter has to exercise context about what the context is. He talking about a general talk of women or a specific talk on wives. For instance, in Ephesians 5, it is evident because we're talking about a marital covenant. Here in the beginning of chapter 2, his statement, Paul says, I desire men everywhere. It's an all-exclusive. Well, the context makes plain. He's talking about all men. And then all women in terms of modesty and how they conduct themselves. To shift into a husband-wife category is inconsistent with the text. Paul is not singling out women, by the way. That was one of the questions. Why does he seem to be zeroing in on women? Uh, Please note, the letter is addressed to whom first? Who's Who's it written to? We're in 1 Timothy. There's your hint. Paul's admonition is first directed to Timothy. He also mentions Alexander and Hymenaeus, calls them out. And then in chapter 2, men lead the way in holiness and prayer. But likewise, sisters, you are not second-class citizens. You are co-sharers of the gospel. And so I want to talk to you as well. And number one, women should be learners. Do you see that in verse 11? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, we read through this in the English and we say, let a woman learn, and the way she learns, or the emphasis, is on quietness and submissiveness. But as you read through the context here, but even more explicit in the Greek, the emphasis is on let a woman learn. In other words, Timothy, if we were to emphasize this this verse in this way, Timothy, let a woman learn, brother. She is to be a disciple. She should be able to learn and to be discipled right along with the men. A disciple or a learner is a prime designation of a Christian. If you look throughout the New Testament, the word learner, disciple are almost interchangeable. Now the context of this, again, let's trace the flow of the argument. Do you remember in chapter one, you have people that are getting off track with the gospel. In chapter two, There is a gospel prejudice inherent. Why? Because these Jews who were very insular in their understanding of the gospel were reluctant for the gospel to go beyond the Jews. Or if they did, hey, you need to be circumcised. You need to come into the Jewish community. 
Old Testament understanding, and those battles still rage into the New Testament. That's why, that's why Paul had to conf- confront Peter in the book of Galatians. There's a gospel prejudice. Now, one other thing that's inherent in that Judaistic culture is that men are taught the Torah. Men have access to the synagogue. And when it comes to learning the Torah, when it comes to learning the things of God, women are second-class citizens. By the way, that Jewish Orthodox understanding of roles is still the same today. If you go to the Orthodox Jewish households, you'll see that exact breakdown. Men study the law. Women, not as important. Here's what Paul is saying to the church. Let no gospel prejudice come in. The gospel is for all. And don't you dare treat your sisters as second-class citizens. They should be right there with the men learning the things of God and should be encouraged to be full disciples and followers of Christ on equal footing as co-inheritors of the salvation in Christ. Let a woman learn In English, this is a little bit technical, in English, but a woman should learn is the indicative declaration. A woman should learn. But in the Greek here, it is a third person singular imperative, meaning let a woman learn. But it's done with the imperatival, the forceful, this is something you must make sure happens. The command is not first actually to women, but to Timothy as the person responsible for the Ephesian worship. And say, Timothy, you better in this church, both in your culture and in your theology and in your teaching, make equal space for men and women to be learners of the things of God. Now, a woman's learnership, a disciple, her discipleship can be threatened by, I'll give you five things briefly, and again, we're going to go into actually some of these in a little bit more detail next week. A woman's discipleship can be threatened by a theology or practice that does not value a woman's discipleship as being equal to man. And let's be blunt, that has infiltrated our churches. Another thing that can threaten a woman's discipleship is ungodly leadership. See Hymenaeus and Alexander of chapter one and the imperative on Timothy's instruction to make sure that you as a leader are encouraging the women in your church to grow, to know God's word, and to expect the same of them that you would of a man. Challenge them to be theologians. Challenge them to understand God's word. Challenge them to be equal and better defenders even than you are of understanding God's word. Another threat to woman's discipleship can be what we saw here in chapter 2, and that is angry and unholy men. Men who wield their authority in anger or abusiveness will shut down our sisters. But ladies, another thing that can shut down your learnership or your discipleship, and Paul spells it out in chapter 2, is vanity and pride in your own heart and the way you dress and the way you conduct yourself. Or as we're looking in these passages, a dissatisfaction in your God-given role. But here's the main point. Let a woman learn. Women should, be, women should be learners. Brothers, to my brothers, you, women are to be equipped, empowered, and encouraged 
to be disciples, learners par excellence. Number two, but our heart should be humble. Our heart should be humble. Let her be a disciple and all quiet and submissiveness. It is tempting to interpret this word quietly, especially in our Western setting. We say that this means shut up. Now, don't send me an email of pastor said shut up in the pulpit. I'm trying to use the forceful, you know, that's how we receive it. It's the sit down and be quiet. How dare you get up and speak? We might read this into Paul's words without ever asking the question, what does he mean by quiet? If you say, I want a quiet heart, you're not inferring, your heart is not thinking or speaking. Or a quiet environment might denote something of order and respect, not absolute silence. In just doing a word study on this word, rarely does this Greek word, I mean rarely, does it refer to a blanket prohibitive policy against spoken expression. Rather, it has, it has, the, has the thought of, of like an attentive silence, an attentiveness of heart, for the sake of listening and giving someone a hearing. It's more like a peaceful and gentle attitude. It's a, it's a posture. And one thing we have to be so careful because we do this in the church. We take principles and we make laws out of them. Here we have principles for worship that should be striven to for accuracy but don't write a new list of Ten Commandments when that's not Paul's intention here. He's giving guidelines. When we think about a quiet heart, um, maybe an analogous situation might be Martha and Mary. So, so here you have Martha who's running around, busy heart, unquieted mind, and she is just running everywhere. She's not silent. It's not that, it's not that she's just silent, but she, she, she's stirred up. And then you have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And again, it's not that she is silent, but it's the posture of, teach me, I want to learn. I want to know God. I want to hear from God. Quietly with all submissiveness. Again, in an anti-authoritarian Western setting, especially sensitive to the oppression of women. We struggle with this. I like one translator's uh, take on this phrase, and he says, maybe we could translate it like, let a woman receive training in a quiet demeanor with a complete respect for order. There's a sense of submission and I like the heart of that translation and why? Because what Paul is dealing with in chapter two is worship in disorder. And men are contributing to it and women are contributing to it. Let a woman be submissive. Now here's a question. To whom? Because when we say submissiveness, part of the reaction in our heart, maybe some of you, my sisters, the reaction is submission? Mm. To whom? 
Paul is not calling for submission to himself or to Timothy. Trace the argument from chapter one to chapter two. Be women submissive to the word of God. This is not calling for male-female submission. This is calling for submission to the gospel. Now, there is a right place of roles. Don't overread what I'm saying. We're going to spend five weeks in this trying to unpack this. I'm trying to bring out the point. The flow of the argument here is that the gospel has been maligned. Worship has been maligned. We should be respectful, order, and holy. And women, submit yourself to the teaching of the word of God as learners. A woman in worship is to be provided with a setting conducive to her discipleship. Calling her to learn in quietness, not disruption. Robert Yarbrough, great New Testament scholar, specifically in 1 Timothy, has really, really had a huge impact in our understanding of some aspects of Timothy. He writes, the notion of women in general being in full submission to men in general is completely foreign to the discourse flow of what Paul is saying. So brothers, if you just callously throw out, woman, be submissive to you, it's not what this text is saying. And by the way, that's not a very conducive atmosphere to her being a learner. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then we get into number three, really the heart of the controversy. And again, I'm not going to address it fully today. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then going into verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's the third point. She must exercise her role rightly. She must exercise her role rightly. Let me say it again. Role, by saying role of a woman, role of a man, is not a lessening of equality. Any role diminishment is inherently anti-God. So if you use role to diminish someone instead of to elevate them, that is inherently anti-God. In understanding this verse, uh, let's, let's understand, let's start with the role, the, the creation account that he's going to go to. And, and it's fascinating to note that he goes back to creation to draw out and understand his conclusion about male and female roles and relationships. So over the next few Sundays, we're going to go back to Genesis and look at the results of the fall and how that impacts our understanding and what the heart of the argument is. Remember, role is God's intentional and glorious shaping of you for a purpose. Now, when I read this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Many people misunderstand this and think that her role of being second is a punishment for the fall because she sinned first. That's not what Paul is getting at. Paul is getting at Genesis chapter uh, 2 and 3. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 2 and 3 is where we describe the roles of men and women and the fall. 
He's reminding men and women that the fall is the place where roles got reversed. Let me illustrate. The creation order of headship, the creation order of headship, God, man, woman, the natural world. Man and woman to have dominion over the natural world with God as their head. Both equal in fellowship with God, but different roles. She is the helpmeet. He is the one who is to provide. And they are to co-reign in royalty over the dominion, but there is a headship. God, man, woman, the natural world. Now what happens at the fall? That's totally reversed. What happens? A snake, the natural world exerts influence over the woman who exerts influence over the husband who then together all of them deny and refuse God. Do you see that that role reversal? God, man, woman, natural world. What happened? The natural world to the woman, to the man, and then refusal of God. But you see, Paul's concern is the church is the image Just like in the family, the created order of headship. This is not an issue of capability. If I was a pragmatist, believe me, I would hire female pastors tomorrow because I am struck with how gifted our women are at teaching the word of God. Now you say, oh, you've already tipped your hand. You don't believe in female pastors. Bear with me. Let us walk through God's word and understand as we go through this text what it means and that a certain restriction does not mean that there isn't wide empowerment elsewhere. The church is to image the created order of headship. In other words, Paul is getting at don't reverse headship in the church like what happened at the fall. Don't do that. You have to understand that our world is constantly about celebrating the reversal of headship and the reversal of the created order and the disdain of God and the denial of roles and the denial of gender and the denial of sexuality in its proper place. It is about reversing and convoluting everything that Genesis stands for. And it's nothing new. It was happening there in Ephesus as well. It says Adam was not deceived, but Eve was. He's not saying it's Eve's fault. He's saying, remember the order. It's that reversal. She was deceived first. But actually in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul unequivocally, unequivocally says, Adam is the reason for the fall. He's the first Adam. The first Adam who, as the first man, brought sin into the world, just as sin entered the world through one man. In the context of the church, the woman is to respect that headship by not usurping authority or the teaching role from overseers. 
qualified men entrusted with leadership of the church. Women must not assume a role that has not been given to them. And brothers, just because you're a man doesn't automatically mean you're an overseer. If you have not been entrusted in that role, you should not assume that role. It is not because I am more holy nor more godly in the sense of that I am just a better guy. No. But one of the problems in the church is that we have ceased to demand of our leadership that they know Jesus, that they love his word, and that their lives actually walk in holiness and obedience and that they have been proven. And you must constantly ask that question of me and your other pastors. It is qualified leadership. Paul says, I I do not permit a woman to teach. You might say, well, that's his personal opinion. Be very careful. Once you start disallowing aspects of Scripture to be consistent with your interpretive, what we call hermeneutic, how you interpret Scripture, if this is his opinion, well, we could just pick and choose other things that we just think are his opinion and therefore disallow them. When he says, I do not permit, he's speaking with apostolic authority to teach. It would be a mistake to assume that to teach is a universal statement that women should not teach. Remember the flow of the argument. Timothy, hold fast to the gospel. There are men, leaders, overseers in the church who corrupted the gospel, some of whom are like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Men set an example, women set an example. And let not a woman usurp the authority or take the teaching place specifically of the overseer. And if you wonder what type of overseers we're talking about, thank you for asking. 1 Timothy 3. Here's what they should look like. This is not a blanket statement on women don't teach. But rather, you reverse the headship when you try to take the place of the person or the individuals, the elders, who've been entrusted and qualified with the oversight, specifically the teaching role that is responsible for the oversight of the church. Let's be very very practical here. Because of the role that I hold, not to diminish or mitigate any of our other fine teachers across the church. But if someone in a Bible study shares something and says, well, this is what I think, most of you are not gonna say that is definitive of where the entirety of the congregation of heritage as an ecclesiastical gathering stands. But if Nathan Smith, while exercising his role as senior pastor entrusted to this position by you, gets up and says, this is where this body is, it is a definitive authoritative declaration on behalf of this body in line with God willing of this word that represents what this body is about. Please hear my heart. I am not saying that in arrogance or rather with authoritative me but rather 
Those are roles and entrusted responsibilities of leadership. When the President of the United States speaks, he does speak for the U.S., whether or not you like him or not. He is the recognized head of this state. A woman is not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Specifically, this is not again. This is not an absolute statement across there is no context ever where a woman does not exercise a degree of authority over a man. If a female policewoman pulls you over today, I hope you stop. Because I'm not going to defend you if you decide to run away from her. You say, oh, pastor, that's a stupid example. We're talking about the church here. Even in the context of the church, we entrust our sisters befitting their roles with even great degrees of responsibility and leadership. Didn't we not see that in Phoebe in Romans 16? Did not Priscilla and Aquila disciple Apollos, one of the greatest expositors of God's word? There's a place for our sisters in Christ to exert great influence, but not usurp the authority of and take the place and the teaching role of the overseer. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Now again, what does this mean? It's that respectful giving a hearing with regards to the male overseers. This is not a carte blanche statement across all men. This is specifically in the context of the argument. You should respect your husbands. Hopefully you'll respect your brothers in Christ, but the context of this argument, the sisters, stop trying to wrestle that authority away. You are, in essence, reversing the, fall, the headship and doing what the fall happened again. Even the word here, teach, well, you might say, well, it means to teach, right? That's what it means. Well, as we look at the infinitive construction of the Greek, it has an idea of to be a teacher. To assume the role of being the teacher in the context of headship. Because that's the discussion that's taking place. It's about headship. It's not about a universal statement about a woman's ability. It's a headship discussion. And to reflect that in proper respect. And the head is to exercise that in great humility and gentleness and value, of which we brothers have not historically been very good at, hence we'll talk about that next week. And what does that mean for us? And how do we establish an environment and culture here by which our sisters can learn and exercise their gifts? Now, on the other side of the spectrum, some say, no, no, there, there's no difference. Men and women can have access to all roles. And the argument frequently goes something like, well, Paul was writing in a different cultural setting. A woman is forbidden from wielding abusive authority. For she can teach just as well as a man. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. All are one in Christ. Now, if you don't stop and think carefully... Paul was writing in a different cultural setting. If someone just throws cultural archaeological statements out there, I hope you prove them. There have been a lot of studies and there is no verifiable data of any significance that suggests that the setting in which Paul was writing was controlling the statement in and such a way that we should discard it today. When it says a woman is forbidding from wielding abusive authority, so as long as she's a good 
elder pastor, she's fine. That Greek word does not have that connotation at all. That's a read-in of the text. For she can teach just as well as a man, therefore should be allowed. First part, I absolutely agree with. She can teach well. Ability does not connote to access. Brothers, just because you have an ability doesn't mean necessarily that you are qualified for overseership either. Something you must strive for. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. Absolutely true, true statement. Wielded in the wrong place. What is Paul talking about in Galatians 3.8? There is no male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. In the context of the salvation that we have in Christ. He's not saying there's neither, neither Jew nor female in the context of marriage. Or in the context of eldership. Beware of people who throw out quick arguments that sound right and you don't ask the question, wait, wait, can that verse be used in this context? Be careful. Brothers and sisters, our goal is to be a holy church who walks out the living Christ. And sisters, that you will pursue, number four, faith, love, and holiness, all with self-control. A salvation because of you being able to bear babies, that would be contrary to all New Testament doctrine. So we can rule that out. What does it mean? How do we understand that? I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about it in five weeks. I want time to be able to walk through that carefully, so please bear with me. Faith, love, this should be the adornment of your life. Not costly jewels and pearls. Not status. We're seeking the limelight so that people can recognize who you are. Rather, faith. The eyes of trust with God and love. The primary expression of faith. Holiness. A life in godliness and self-control. Is this any different than what we see in Proverbs 31.30? Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Paul's goal here is not to shut down his sisters in Christ, but rather within the context of what God has deemed good and right, that you brothers should love and encourage and empower your sisters in Christ to the fullest extent of their abilities and giftings, and my sisters in Christ, that you will wield your giftedness and your role and responsibilities in all love and holiness and faith that beautifies not you, but the church of the living God. And if we all do that together, oh, it'll be countercultural and people won't understand. And maybe some of you are going to be really angry with me after the service, probably. But will we strive? Will we look forward to that day that we can begin to live out now that one day Christ will completely make right? I look forward to that day. I don't know about you. But in the meantime, let's be faithful. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that you would help my words to go forward clearly. Pray that you would forgive me for the weakness that are inherent within them. And I pray for my brothers that they would lead humbly. I pray for my sisters who have undoubtedly incurred hurts and pains along this journey. And I pray that you would help this church to be a place of healing for both and also a place where we exercise our gifts to the glory of Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.